Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lecture. Uh, it's already April of 2015, and we're winding up our 88th year of bringing public astronomy lectures to... Thank you. And we welcome those of you watching us, our podcast on the World Wide Web, streaming at www.as.arizona.edu, or downloading the podcast from iTunes U, the University of Arizona page. It's a beautiful night in Tucson, and uh, thank you all for coming out. Uh, I, you must not be the hardcore basketball fans, you know, so that's fine. Um, I want to remind you that because it's a beautiful night, the 21-inch Raymond E. White reflector in the historic Stewart Observatory building will be open at the conclusion of this lecture for your viewing pleasure. If you've never looked through a large telescope, I suggest you know, Jupiter is on the menu tonight because it's up high in the sky. Also, if you are here for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignment with the Stewart Observatory stamp at the conclusion of our question and answer period. I'd like to remind you there is one more lecture before our season ends, and it will be two weeks from today, on the 20th of April. Turns out that the Dawn spacecraft, this is gonna be a wonderful year for planetary exploration. The Dawn spacecraft is orbiting Ceres. Ceres, former planet, former asteroid, now it's a dwarf planet. And we're gonna hear Mark Sykes give us the latest scoop. He's one of the principal investigators of the mission, and he's gonna show us live data from Ceres. And then I've already set the date for the next lecture in the fall. It'll be September 21st. So you can put that on your calendar. The lectures will begin September 21st in 2015. So it is with great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker. Professor Michael Chris received his bachelor's degree in astronomy from the University of Arizona. He also received his master's degree in astronomy from the University of Arizona. In fact, he holds the distinction of receiving the first graduate degree from the Stewart Observatory in 1959. Yes. It was the very first graduate degree granted by this department. Uh, professor Chris then went on to California. For many years, he was a professor and taught at San Mateo, College of San Mateo, is that right? He was also the director of their planetarium at the College of San Mateo. He has since retired and moved back to Tucson about five years ago. He's currently teaching as adjunct faculty here at Stewart Observatory. He teaches our his upper division history of astronomy class, uh, which is taught both to our majors and our astronomy minors. I'd also like to say that this is not the first Stewart public evening lecture that Professor Chris has given. Professor Chris, as a graduate student, gave a lecture in 1957 I wasn't born yet, okay? But he gave a lecture, a Stewart Public Evening Lecture in 1957. Back then, this building wasn't here. None of the red brick buildings were here. It was in the original historic white Stewart Dome. The ground floor was the classroom, which is now graduate student offices. So he actually gave a public evening lecture there in 1957. And he is one of the experts on Galileo. I'm sure he'll tell you. He used to perform a one-man show at his planetarium in San Mateo on Galileo, so tonight you're in for a treat. Sit back, you're gonna learn about some of the great history in the science of astronomy. Professor Michael Chris on the crime of Galileo.
thank you, Tom. Galileo had many problems in his life, but he never had to contend with basketball. <laughs> I don't know how he would have done. At any rate, it's a pleasure to see basketball or not. It's a pleasure to see all of you here tonight. In, in 16... 32, a man went on trial. That man's name was Galileo. The charge against him brought by the highest authorities in the Catholic Church The charge was heresy. The possible penalty for Galileo would have been death by burning at the stake. Thus, the most famous scientist of his era went on trial for his life. And tonight's lecture is about that man, Galileo. He was born in 1564. That was the year Michelangelo died. It was the year Shakespeare was born. These were the contemporaries of Galileo. This portrait of him by a very famous portrait artist, Jan Sustermans, was done in 1636. This was after the trial, after Galileo had to face these charges. As you will see, Galileo was under house arrest as a result of that trial. And that's when this portrait was painted. You can only imagine the thoughts that this man might have had as he sat for that portrait. But this is not the way he normally looked. He was getting old when he sat for the portrait. This is the way he normally looked. Younger, not much younger. He was an argumentative fellow. People had reason to fear his argumentation. 
He did it well. What this portrait does not show is how red his hair was as a young man. Now, red hair doesn't prove anything, of course, but to the extent that people think that redheads are hot-headed, Galileo more than lived up to that image. I myself would not have welcomed getting into any kind of a fight with Galileo. He was born in this house here. This is in Pisa. One year of my life, I went trying to walk in the footsteps, quote-unquote, of Galileo. It took me a while to find his birth home. Above, I think, a pizza parlor, which certainly wouldn't have been there at that time. I remember when I did find the house, I went up to look at the number of people who were living there with their names next to the buttons, almost thinking I would see his name. I would press his button and I would say something like, hey Galileo, how about a game of stickball? How did I find this house? Well, if you notice on the corner of the house, there is some kind of frou-frost sticking to it, an escutcheon. Here's what it looks like. It tells us that in this house was born to the great nobleman, Vincenzo Galilei, that's the father. Was born the great Galileo. How, how come it took him so, so long to get, you know, to Galileo's name? Well, his father was pretty famous too, Vincenzo. His father was a musician. His father got together with other musicians routinely, like a garage band, I guess. And they played Renaissance-type music. They were called in history the Florentine Camerata, a group of people who met in a chamber to play music. They played chamber music. And they had the idea, wouldn't it be grand to marry this music with drama, the way the Greeks did 1,500 years before? And so they set out to do that, and they did it. They invented opera. And people in that group, the earliest operas, from the Renaissance at least, that we call opera, was at that time. That's why his father 
his father's name comes first because they are Italians and Italians love music and music is important so is astronomy but not as important as music Galileo lived how shall we say in interesting times Shortly before he was born, in 1564, things were happening. As Bob Dylan would say, the times they are changing. What was changing? Well, in 1492, an entire new world unknown to anyone. Anyone. And that means the people in authority. An entire new world was discovered. An entire new take on religion was established before Galileo was born. In Germany, when Martin Luther, a Catholic priest, was fed up and said, no more of this. And he protested against the Holy Father in Rome. And his church was called the Protesting Church, the Protestant Church, the first of many to protest against each other after a while. That happened before Galileo was born. And astronomically, this Polish sort of a priest, not quite a priest, Nicholas Copernicus wrote a book which came out in the year he died, 1543. A book which Nicholas Copernicus called Concerning the Revolution of the Heavenly Bodies. It was about a new idea a new idea of how planets moved. They moved around the sun, said Copernicus. Up to that time, for well over a millennia, people had said they move around the earth. Martin Luther called Copernicus a fool who would turn astronomy upside down. These were the times in which Galileo was born. And these are the events that would affect his life. So there he is, as a young man, interested in science. His father really wanted him to be a doctor, and I like that. His father wanted him to make money. The father didn't have much money. He was a nobleman, but he was quote, an impoverished nobleman. And he didn't want Galileo to go through any of that. And he thought that the best way to ensure his future, financial future, would be to become a doctor. So Galileo, at the age of 16, enrolled in the University of Padua, 
where the family was, uh, not Padua, Pisa, Pisa, he would move to Padua. And if you go to Pisa, after you see the Leaning Tower and the cathedral, you can wander off and look at the university, which is scattered around the town in a number of buildings. It looks pretty much the way it looked when Galileo was there. One of those buildings is devoted to medicine, the faculty of medicine. That's where Galileo enrolled at the age of 16. He didn't like it. His first lecture on anatomy rather convinced him that he didn't like it. And he left to go where? Where would you go? If you were at the University of Arizona as a freshman and you enrolled in a class that you did not like, what would you do? Well, I'll tell you what Galileo did. No, he did not go off on a motorcycle heading toward Nogales. <laughs> not where he lived. What Galileo did was to cross the street, as it were, to another building. And in that building was the College of Physics, the Faculty of Physics, which included astronomy. Galileo found that interesting, and what's more, he was good at it. He was a good student. He never graduated, but he was good enough that he became a tutor to physics students and was able to earn his living. And he needed to, because by that time he had a child, and he didn't marry the lady. In fact, he was to have three children with that lady, never married. He always said he couldn't afford it. Well, he probably couldn't. What kind of a reason is that, though? Galileo was the oldest male in his family and thus was responsible for the dowry of his sister, who was not yet married. And the father had died by this time. Galileo had a brother who seemed to be a deadbeat brother, as far as this goes. We have letters from Galileo to the brother asking, can't you please contribute? But it was Galileo who took on that responsibility. He also did experiments. He was now a young man in his 20s, probably looking like this, and he did experiments. One that, unless you've had a course in physics or history of physics or astronomy, it's not particularly famous. You wouldn't know about it, except I know you've heard about it. Have you ever heard that when you drop two objects, They both hit the ground at the same time. Galileo discovered that. If that was not believed then, a heavier object falls faster 
than a lighter object. Think of it. Why shouldn't it? Aristotle said so, just in case, you know, you wanted an authority. Heavier objects move faster and will hit the ground first. Galileo built a device that looks something like this. This is a reconstruction. And he rolled spheres of different weights down this inclined plane. And he timed how long it took these different spheres that weighed different amounts to reach the bottom. How did he time them? He didn't look at his wristwatch, I can tell you that. His wristwatch wouldn't have had a sweep second hand. He wouldn't have had a wristwatch. He tried timing it by putting his hand on his heart and counting the beats. No, things happen too fast. That's not a good timepiece. Besides, he probably got excited and his heart would race. So he invented a clock, a water clock. Look like this. Over there on the right. He had um, a funnel with a tube with water in it. And he had his finger at the bottom of the tube and a can say a coffee can, to catch the water as it ran out. And then he would start the ball down. And when it reached the bottom, oh, he, he would remove his finger as the ball started down. And when it reached the bottom, he'd quickly replace his finger. Then he would weigh the water. And that way, by weights, he could say how much time it took. It worked. He came to the conclusion that it didn't matter how heavy the sphere was that he rolled down the plane, it always reached the bottom at the same time, the same amount of water. He tried raising the plane higher, a bigger tilt. Things happen much more rapidly when you do that. But it was still the same result. The heavy object, the lighter object, took the same amount of time, water, to reach the bottom. And he reasoned to himself, if I raise the tilt so it was straight up and down, then the object would fall. And it would probably have to hit the ground at the same time. That's what he was finding out. So the story went around of the day that Galileo climbed the leaning tower of Pisa. Have you ever been to the leaning tower of Pisa? Sure you have. Not everybody. Those who haven't, I'm sure will. It's irresistible to be in Pisa and not go to the leaning tower. Uh, you better not be afraid of heights, because it does lean. And when you go up to the top, for me, I was plastered against the railing on the high side. I was afraid to take a step. Uh-oh, go back. 
But in the drawing, Galileo dropped two weights. They really do look like they are different weights. When I was there, for 100 lira at that time, it was lira, you could get a recording in one of 10 languages, I guess. I chose English. Let's not make it any harder. And it will explain to you when this happened. The only thing is, it never did. We're not sure where the story came from. Probably one of his students who loved him, and there were a few, who would tell stories that they may have honestly believed, or maybe didn't. One thing is clear from the inclined plane experiment, had Galileo done this, that would have been the result. And I wonder how many of you remember when there were astronauts who went to the moon. One of them was named Ed Lovell. And there he was on camera, and he had a hammer. I guess that's part of the toolkit for an astronaut, a little hammer. And he had a feather. God knows where he got the feather from. And on camera, he dropped them. And we could all see they reached the lunar surface without any air resistance at the same time. That would happen on the Earth except for the air resistance. But what we remember Galileo most for was his miraculous year, 1610, when Galileo turned a telescope to the heavens, the first person to do so. If you were the first person to turn a telescope to the heavens, you'd be famous too, because you would see things that no one had ever seen before. Galileo not only saw these things, he was able to interpret what they meant. Now, he didn't invent the telescope. Galileo was living by this time in Padua, teaching at the university there. That's near Venice. So ships came into Venice all the time. And on one of these ships, Galileo heard about a perspective tube, it was called. Perspicilli, Galileo called it, a perspective tube. And it, it, it came from Holland. And it was just like a cardboard tube. And it seemed to have a lens on one end and a lens on the other end. And you look through it, and it made things look a little closer. Galileo got curious about this. He took it apart. And with his knowledge of physics, he figured out how it must work and made one for himself, but much better. He called that thing that he bought from the ship in Venice, he called that a toy. He made a real instrument, he said. One that magnified 10 times. Can you imagine? 10 times, about as much as binoculars would. Not with a very good image, but 10 times. Boy, was he impressed. 
and he's going to turn this telescope to everything about him. You can see these telescopes today if you go to Florence. There is a museum called the History of Science Museum there. It is right behind the famous art museum, the Uffizi. Everybody goes to the Uffizi to see the great works of art. But you'd have to know about this other museum to go there. It's right behind the Uffizi. And if you went to that museum, if you went into the Galileo room, this is what you would see. Two telescopes in a glass case. Galileo made many more than two, but there are two that we absolutely know he made these with his own hands. And there they are. If you go around to the end of the glass case, you could look through one of them. They must have put it that way on purpose. What's that big thing in the middle, that framed thing? It's this. In this ornate ivory frame is a lens. It is the lens with which Galileo discovered the moons of Jupiter. You could stand there and get lost in a dream of what that moment was like. The telescopes look something like this. Not very big, but big enough to change the world upside down. Now, the first thing that Galileo used the telescope for was to try and get some money out of it. Yes, he, he was always needing money. There's a wonderful book about uh, Galileo written by his daughter, who became a nun, and it's called Galileo's Daughter. And um, you can read. We have so many letters that, um, that she sent to him. He sent letters to, to her. She burned them, though, at the trial, thinking it could be used against him. But we have his letters to her. And we can see what the father, Galileo, was like for this loving daughter. And yes, Galileo always needed money. So the first thing that he did was to go to Venice. Remember, he lived right near Venice. And here in this painting, he's up on top of the Rialto, uh, not the Rialto, of the Tower of Venice, on the Piazza San Marco. And they're looking out to the ocean. And he's showing these people here. You can spot Galileo with the red hair, I hope. And he's showing these people here that you can see boats hours before they come into port. And these people are brokers. And these people have stocks riding on the arrival of different ships. And this would be a useful tool for them to own. 
and Galileo knew it. But Galileo was really an astronomer at heart, and of course he is going to turn that telescope to the heavens. And the first thing he will look at is, what do you think? Yeah, <laughs> what would anyone look at? What's the, what's the most obvious thing in the sky to look at? The moon. So here are sketches of the moon done by Galileo. He had an artistic hand, there is no doubt. And we look at the moon in different phases here. And it looks natural to us. If you've ever seen the moon through binoculars, you will see something like this, assuming you can hold those binoculars steady enough. But you know what? The moon's not supposed to look like this. You see, the moon is a heavenly body. At least I'm talking back at the days when Galileo lived. And as a heavenly body, as a heavenly object, all the planets, and that included the moon, all the planets were made out of a perfect kind of an atom, an element called the fifth element, the quintessence. And anything made out of the quintessence was perfect. And the surface of such objects would be perfectly smooth, like a beautiful, clear marble. What was Galileo saying? Well, he was seeing the moon's surface was rough. He was seeing mountains on the moon and craters. In fact, what he was seeing on the moon wasn't very different from the kinds of things he could see on the earth. And Galileo thought to himself, up there, there is no up there. Up there and down here are the same thing. It's made out of the same stuff. We are made out of the same stuff as the heavens. At least we are as the moon. And that's the exact opposite of what everyone believed and what they had been taught for 1,500 years ever since the Greek philosophers said that. And by this time, the church had placed the location of heaven out there where the stars are, out there where the planets are. Everything would be perfect out there. And the moon would be perfect. But it wasn't perfect. It was the same as down here. Where was heaven then? Galileo was to see more with that telescope. He turned it, here's his notebook, and you see some of his sketches. He turned it to this object here, an object which you can see tonight, if you wish, through the telescope after the talk. The object is Jupiter. Galileo observed Jupiter over many, many nights. Notice the little stars to the left and to the right of Jupiter on the different nights. What are those? Like little gnats hovering around a light bulb. What are those? Well, let's simplify it in this drawing here. This was his discovery drawing, although Galileo didn't make this drawing himself. 
This was done by an illustrator from the pictures I had just shown you. Galileo tells us that he first turned his telescope toward Jupiter on the night of the 7th of January in the year 1610. That's the one at the top. And he was quite surprised because he saw three stars all lined up with it. And he wondered what a coincidence that is. So the next night, he looked again. And there, those three stars were now all on one side of Jupiter. He said, well, Jupiter is moving. It's a planet. So I guess that's why the three stars now appear all on one side. Jupiter has moved to the other side. But he knew that Jupiter was not moving in that direction. As a matter of fact, it was moving in the opposite direction. What's going on here? And so, as he says in his notebook, I therefore waited with the most intense longing for the following night. But I was disappointed, for there were clouds in every direction. And so we know that on the night of the 9th of January in the year 1610 in Padua, it was cloudy. Well, okay, the next night it cleared up. And you can see what he saw in the third drawing down. It looks like two of those objects, one's now missing, is on the other side again. And he keeps on looking night after night until finally a fourth one appears. And he keeps on observing them. And he realized what's going on is Jupiter is surrounded by moons. He could see four of them. You can see four of them yourself even with binoculars. Ten power binoculars would be enough. Seven power would be enough. But you have to hold the binoculars really steady, like leaning it against the side of a building or a tree. And then you'll see them. You'll see what Galileo saw. And as he watched these moons, for he figured out they must be satellites of Jupiter, he realized that Jupiter is a miniature solar system, he called it. It's another system, just like the planets going around the sun. And yet he knew that the Earth was the center of the universe, wasn't it? And everything went around the Earth. He had been taught that. That's what everyone believed. That's what he, everybody had been told ever since the days of the ancient Greeks. Those were the authorities. And Galileo saw with his own eyes Jupiter also is the center of motion for these moons. What else? A lot more. Look at the sketches along the bottom. What you see is something that looks like, well, a crescent moon, a fat crescent, a half moon, and it's getting smaller. What he is looking at and drawing here 
is Venus. Venus goes through phases, just the same as the moon. As a matter of fact, he wrote it, he was careful, he wrote it in sort of a coded form. He said, the mother of loves imitates the forms of Cynthia. That's very poetic. But what he's really saying is that the mother of loves, which is Venus, imitates the same forms as far as the faces go as Cynthia, which is the moon. Now, this cannot be explained by having the Earth at the center of the universe. This is direct proof that the Earth can't be the center of the universe, that it had to be the Sun. What to do? Well, there was one more thing he's going to find. This is the Sun. Galileo was foolish enough. I shouldn't laugh. Galileo was eager, obviously, as we all would be. Galileo was foolish enough that even though the sun was so bright, he looked at it through a telescope. Yes, he waited for the sun to be setting. When it seems you could look at it, it turns this great red ball. And although it hurts the eyes, not as much as when it's overhead. And he would look at the sun. He went blind as he got older. Um, Many years later, this may have had something to do with it. What did he see on the sun? Dark spots, sunspots. No one had ever seen them before. When he told people about it, one person who criticized him said, my God, will he also put blemishes on the face of the sun? The sun was supposed to be pure and golden just as the moon was supposed to be smooth. No, the sun has blemishes. Galileo said, I didn't put the blemishes there. I only found them there. Shoot the messenger. Well, Galileo had to tell people about this, and he did. He wrote a book in Latin, Siderius Nuncius which is usually translated as, um, there's the title page, usually translated as the starry messenger. He wrote it in Latin. It will be the last time he will write a book in Latin because the only people at that time who could read Latin were people who taught in the colleges and church people. And these are the people who are going to be his critics. Henceforth, Galileo will write in Italian so everyone can read it. Galileo said, I want everyone to be an astronomer. Let's look at this page. Siderius Nuncius, great and admirable objects brought to you or seen by the philosopher, philosophist, do you see that word? Philosophist, here it is. And astronomer, known as Galileo Galileo. It looks like a misprint, but it isn't. It's, it's the way Latin changes forms. And what does he call himself right under his name? 
Patricio Florentino, a gentleman of Florence. That's what he is. He's no slouch. And look at this word here. He does this with a perspicuity, a perspective tube. And finally, he says, I saw many things, but among them were four planets. He really means the moons of Jupiter, but he's calling them planets. Four planets around Jovis, Jupiter. And he calls these, he names them, the Medicean stars. He names these new discoveries after the Duke of Medici. Good move. Why name them after the Duke of Medici? Well, Duke, he wants another job. He, I mean, he's really scratching out a living here. And he wants the Duke of Medici to hire him for some exalted position, no doubt, with good salary. And it works. The Duke of Medici hires him. There's only one problem. Not everybody agreed with Galileo. In spite of his publishing all this, he couldn't get the church fathers to look through the pers perspicuity and see the same things. And in all fairness, it wasn't a very good telescope. And if you look through it, you would see fuzzy images. It hurts my eyes, you would say. Well, naming them the Medicean stars, as I said, did work. And Galileo had to move to Florence from Venice, from Padua. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is that Florence, pardon me, uh, Venice, and Venetian territory was a free and independent republic ruled by the doges of Venice. And the papal authorities in Rome had no jurisdiction in the Venetian Republic. But in moving to Florence, Galileo would be in Tuscan territory, and there the power of the Pope and the Church existed very powerfully. Galileo was moving into harm's way. He knew it, I'm sure he knew it, but who could resist the higher salary? Who could resist the title that was conferred upon him by the Duke of Medici. The Duke of Medici hired him as the chief mathematician and philosopher to the Grand Duke. What a title. Irresistible. And he did not resist it. And so he moves. And then the troubles began. 
Because within a few years, by 1616, two years after he moved, he was called in for an audience in front of Cardinal Bellarmine, who admonished him. Bellarmine told him that the church was considering banning the book by Copernicus and declaring that a belief that the sun is the center to be against the Bible and to be a heretical belief. Or to put it in the words of Bellamine, and it's up there on the, on the slide, to assert that the earth revolves around the sun is as erroneous as to claim that Jesus was not born of a virgin. What would you do if somebody, if you're Galileo and a cardinal of the church says that to you? More than that, it's one thing to disagree with a, with a cardinal Bellamine in, in an argument, but it's quite another thing to be told, and the church will soon rule this as a heretical belief. And Galileo would open himself to that charge of heresy. And so Galileo went to Rome. He wanted to speak to the Holy Father himself and to explain what he saw in the telescope. By this time, the word telescope was being used. He wanted to explain what he saw in the telescope and to convince the Holy Father that this was the truth of the universe. And for the church to insist that the earth was the center, was to deny what you could see with your own eyes. And it should not be declared heresy. He did not succeed. It was declared heresy. But Galileo did succeed in removing the suspicion that he himself was a heretic. And so he left Rome in 1616, no longer able to teach the new astronomy that he had the proof of. How would you feel? At the very moment that you had incontrovertible evidence, the evidence of your eyes, that the earth went around the sun. It was at that moment that you are silenced and told that if you say that, if you defend that idea, you will be brought up on charges of heresy. I remind you, this was an age when they were burning people. This is an age when the um, Inquisition, inquiring into people's beliefs, had full power. These were not idle threats. Well, Galileo went home. And we know what his thoughts are because he wrote a series of letters to the mother of the Grand Duke of Tuscany. Her name was Christina. 
And in these letters, he told her what his thoughts were. And he said, were I not forbidden from saying this in public, I surely would. What are these thoughts? Well, they've been published. They weren't published at that time. But they've been published, I can't say recently, just look at the style of this book. But they were published um, a century afterwards. Here are some of the thoughts that Galileo had. That mathematics is the alphabet with which God has written the universe. If you want to understand the universe, you had to study mathematics. And in questions of science, the authority of a thousand is not worth the humble reasoning of a single individual. You know, <laughs> it sounds like we would agree with that in our day and age, that the authority of a thousand people, wherever they are, is not worth the reasoning of a single, humble reasoning of a single individual. Well, that's okay if the individual is Galileo. Suppose it isn't Galileo. A lot of people think of themselves as Galileo, and if they've learned phrases like this, they wrap it around themselves. There has to be a difference. Let's see what it is. Speaking about theology, Galileo tells the Grand Duchess, the Holy Bible can never speak untruth, but you have to understand its true meaning. And it is abstruse. Galileo said that if you read the Bible correctly, it will not be found to disagree with science for they were both written by the same author. And then I like this last line. It is the intention of the Holy Spirit in the Bible to teach us how one goes to heaven, not how the heavens go. But we now know that Galileo didn't make up that line. It was told to him by a priest, a father Baronius, who apparently was favorable to Galileo and his new ideas. Let those theologians who are not astronomers guard against rendering the scriptures false by trying to interpret it against propositions which may be true and which might be proved to be so. And Galileo felt he had the proof of these propositions that the sun was the center, and if the church was insisting that it had to be the other way around because that's the way it was in the Bible, according to the church, Galileo says, let them beware. What will happen if it turns out that they are wrong in their science? You, know, you don't talk to people in authority that way not without getting into trouble. And finally, to the Grand Duchess, he says, I do not feel obliged to believe 
that the same God who has endowed us with senses and reason and intellect has intended us to forego their use. The man writes well. The man thinks well. He expresses himself well. He is a uh, formidable foe, but he is up against forces that he really doesn't understand, that he thinks he can win over, and he is wrong. I jump ahead to something Carl Sagan said, for here is the essence of what Galileo was saying. Although he didn't have the 400 years between his time and Carl Sagan's time to think it out. Critical thinking is the ability to recognize a fallacious argument from a genuine one and to reject the fallacious one even if we don't want to. Surely you can think of things that are in the news today that might be described by what Sagan said. While Galileo was silenced, three wonderful comets, bright comets, appeared in the sky. Here's a drawing of one of them. Things were written about these comets. Everybody was turning out to look at the comets in the sky, including Galileo. A priest wrote about the comets, and it was clear that the priest didn't know what he was talking about. And Galileo was just itching to write a rebuttal to this ignoramus. But Galileo felt he couldn't say anything because of the threat that Bellarmine had given him. So Galileo beseeched his friend, a fellow by the name of Mario Guidici. There you see his name on the third line. He said, Mario, write a book about comets. And Mario said, I don't know anything about comets. Galileo said, don't worry, I'll write it for you. <laughs> we'll just use your name. Sounds like the time when the Hollywood had the blacklist. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Just use your name. We'll write the script. And so that was done. Well, the, the father who had written the first thing, he knew who was writing that. He knew Guidici was really Galileo. So he wrote a stinging rebuttal. Not very priestly-like. He was very intemperate in what he said. And he did not put his name on the cover. He said, if Galileo can use somebody else, I'll make up somebody. Somebody called Sarsi, a fictitious character, and answered Galileo. Now we had a fight between Galileo and a priest, and they're not using their right names. And Galileo says, this idiot. Look what he said. And Sarsi, Sarsi is a fictitious name. I can attack Sarsi. I'm not attacking the church. So Galileo comes out and he writes under his own name this book here called Il Saggiatore, which means the assayer, like a goldsmith who has scales and is assaying precious metal. And the precious metal for Galileo was the truth. And Galileo lays out what becomes 
Today we would call it the groundwork of the scientific method. Well, a few years after that, the pope dies. A new pope is crowned. He takes the name Urban VIII. Galileo knows Urban VIII. They, they played pinochle together or something like that. Not literally pinochle, but when they were younger, they went to dinner parties together. They discussed science. Galileo felt he had a friend. So he went to visit Urban VIII, pay his respects, and Galileo wanted to write a book about the new astronomy, and he wanted permission. Urban VIII gave him the permission. He said, but Galileo, you must not take sides. I do not want you in this book to make an argument that defeats the old astronomy of Ptolemy, with the Earth at the center, and advances the Copernican idea with the Sun at the center. You must be impartial. And then the Pope says, I want you to end the book with the following words. Here are the words. It is not for us humble people to decide what God in his majesty can or cannot do. Sounds reasonable. If God wants a universe with the sun at the center, that's okay. He can have it. If God wants a universe with the earth at the center, that's equally okay. She can have it. It is really up to God, and it is not for us to question it, and all your scientific reasoning is besides the point, Galileo. So I want you to end with that thought, and with those words, it is not for us to question what the Almighty God can or cannot do. Terrific. Galileo goes back. He says, I'll write this book. Here's Urban VIII. I've got to tell you one thing about Urban VIII. If you go to um, the Vatican, to the uh, tomb of St. Peter, there is a bronze canopy made of bronze. It's very impressive. Over that tomb right under the dome of Michelangelo. That bronze came from a Roman building called the Pantheon. Urban VIII commanded that the bronze be torn off that old Roman building, which was when? Uh, almost 2,000 years old at the time, to be remade by his sculpturer, Bernini, into this canopy. And a joke went around with the, bob, with the barbarians. Oh, I got to tell you that Pope Urban's family name was Barberini. Barberini. So the joke went around that what the barbarians never did to the pantheon, Barberini did. I don't think the Pope liked that. So you had to be careful when you said that. Well, Galileo set about to write the book. Here it is. It comes out in 1632. It's, it's in Italian. It's called The Dialogues of Galileo, Galilei. Lincenzio is a scientific society he belonged to. So 
he was reminding people, I'm a member of, of like the Elks Club, except it was science. Lincenzio. And then he describes himself, Mathematico supraordinario. That sounds the same in English, I think. He's a philosopher and a mathematician, the first mathematician of his serene highness, the Grand Duke of Tuscany. And in this book, he's going to discuss the Massimi, the great Sistemi, the great system of the, of the world, the Ptolemaico and the Copernico. So in the book, there are three people like you see here in this illustration, and they're arguing. And one argues for Copernicus, one argues for Ptolemy, and the other sort of in between. He asks questions of both. So it's like a play. You're eavesdropping on a play. Before we get into that, look at that illustration. Look at the face on the guy on the right. That's supposed to be Copernicus. It looks, certainly looks like Galileo to me. A, a re-edition of this book, same picture, changes the face. So they became sensitive to that. At any rate, Galileo, it's called the Dialogues of Galileo, and uh, he gets uh, four imprimators, which means he takes it to four different priests who read it and say nothing against the faith, and they give the stamp of approval which is called an imprimatur. And in the book, the arguments go. And here you can see, here's one, here's another, here's another character. And you read what they have to say. I open to this diagram because it shows, it shows the moon going around the Earth and the moon's going around Jupiter. And the sun is at the center. And the person in the book who is impartial, who asks questions of both, Galileo calls that person, that character, Salgredi, who's, who's actually a name of a friend of his. The one who argues for Copernicus, the character is called Salviati. And the one who argues for Ptolemy, Galileo calls him Simplicio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the way it struck the Pope, too. <laughs> and those words that the book had to end with, that the Pope said, the book did end with those words. But who said them? Simplicio. Okay, too much, too much. <laughs> Galileo is ordered to come to Rome, to stand trial, and to recant, to abjure, to recant what he said. Galileo was 70 years old, and traveling, traveling to Rome from Florence wasn't easy. Something like going from here to Phoenix. No, that's, that's easy. Here to Eloy. That's hard. 
But Galileo was ordered to go, and he must go, and he does go. And in this church called, which is there today, called Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, St. Mary's over Minerva, because there used to be a temple to Minerva that the Romans built, torn down in Christian times, and the church built there. So Santa Maria over the ruins of Minerva, which is kind of ironic because Minerva was the goddess of wisdom. And it is in that church that the trial takes place. Here's what it must have looked like. Galileo, 70 years old, the charge is read to him. Also told, we have an actual order in the Vatican files that Galileo was to be shown the instruments of torture, not to use them, just to show them, which was done. Finally, Galileo agrees to sign what's called the abjuration of Galileo. There it is. There's a signature at the bottom, I, Galileo, translation into English. I, Galileo Galilei, son of the late Vincenzo Galilei of Florence, aged 70 years, being brought personally to judgment and kneeling, kneeling before you most eminent and most reverend lords, cardinals, general inquisitors, having been vehemently suspected of heresy, not, not even convicted, just suspected, namely of having held and believed that the sun is the center of the universe and immovable and that the earth is not in the center and moves, therefore desiring to remove from the minds of your eminences and every faithful Christian this vehement suspicion rightly conceived against me, I abandon the false opinion that the earth moves. Further, I will denounce to this holy tribunal anyone I suspect of the same belief. That was unnecessary. I abjure, curse, and detest the above-mentioned errors and heresies, and in general, every other error, heresy, and sect contrary to the Holy Church. Galileo was put under house arrest. He lived for another 10 years in this house here outside of Florence where it's now open to the public. In our time, Bertolt Brecht and Pope John Paul II had two other comments that need to be said. First of all, Bertolt Brecht wrote a play, Galileo. And in that play, he had asked Charles Lawton, shown there on the left, to play Galileo. There they are, Brecht and, Ga and Lawton, discussing it. In that play, at one point in the play, Galileo, played by Lawton here, is visited in his cell by someone in the play called the Little Monk. And the Little Monk says this, to explain why the Little Monk believes the church is right. 
The little monk says, my parents are peasants in the Campania who know about the cultivation of the olive tree, not much about anything else. I see my parents, I see them sitting by the fire with my sister, eating their curdled, curded cheese. I see the beams of the ceiling above them, which the smoke of centuries has blackened. And I see the veins stand out in their toil-worn hands, holding little spoons. They scrape a living. Underlying their poverty, there is the belief that there is some sort of order in the universe. There are routines. The routines of scrubbing the floors, the routines of the seasons, the olive orchards, there must be a reason for all of this. And they draw strength from what the Bible says and what they hear every Sunday. They have been told that God relies upon them. What would be the use of their patience and their acceptance of misery if it were not so. Well, in 1992, this story appeared. After about 10 years of a special counsel investigating once again the trial of Galileo, Pope John Paul II announced that he is acquitted of the charge. And the church apologizes to Galileo. What are we left with? We are left with the thoughts of Galileo. What do we do when we have an unpopular idea and people are against it, how is that to be treated? Sagan again says, any popular idea that's extraordinary must have the evidence to back it up before it can be accepted. And Galileo had it, of course. There is, here's where Galileo is buried in the church of the Holy Cross Santa Croce in Florence, right across the aisle from Michelangelo. He wasn't buried there to begin with. The church refused him a special place. A hundred years later, the church relented. His body was moved. Before the body was moved, a finger was taken off, actually five fingers, like a holy relic of a holy saint. We go back to the Museum of Science in Florence to where the telescope is. We look under the telescope and we see this crystal egg. And inside the crystal egg, we see a finger. It is Galileo's finger. It is this finger.
lest we make too much of it, one has to ask, well, Galileo didn't put the finger there. That was somebody else whose idea that was. And although the idea of giving the bird to someone was known at the time, it would be much more Italian, as we find from Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, to bite your thumb. Do you bite your thumb at me, sir? Yes, I do. So, rather than see the finger as something that Galileo did, when we think of Galileo, we should think of his thoughts, his courage, and as a, a beacon of how we should behave if we want to pursue the truth. And I thank you very much. Oh thank you very much, Michael. Due to the lateness of the hour, I think I will forego formal questions, though I'm sure Michael will be happy. I did that on purpose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, the telescope's open. Please feel free to go visit it. I will stamp students' assignments here. We'll see you in two weeks on the 20th of April for, for Dr. Mark Sykes to tell us about the Dawn mission. Take care. <laughs>